Coming up on Art Palace. You know, if I were making a shoe, I would have to learn how to be a cobbler and work with the last to manipulate leather. And whereas once I've made my file, I can print it in small scale. Oh, I don't like the shape of that heel. Let me change it. Print another one. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool people are Dr. Michael Mamp, Associate Professor of Fashion Merchandising and Design at Central Michigan University, and Matthew Martin, 3D Scanning Professional at Exact Metrology. This episode was a live conversation with Cynthia Omneus, Chief Curator and Curator of Fashion Arts and Textiles. It took place on November 30th, 2017. Good evening. I am Cynthia Mneas. I am the chief curator and curator of fashion arts and textiles here at the Cincinnati Art Museum. And tonight we'll be discussing fashion and technology and art and technology. Um, this connects to our special exhibition, Iris Van Erpen, Transforming Fashion. Um, so if you haven't seen the exhibition, it's open through January 7th. Uh, make sure that you get up there to see it. The work of Iris, who's a young Dutch designer uh, who lives and works in Amsterdam, is absolutely amazing. And she is credited as the first designer to send a 3D printed garment down the runway. It's not all that she does. A lot of the pieces that you'll see in the exhibition are handmade um, and hand-stitched, uh, and she uses technology as a tool. So it's not, you know, once she discovered 3D printing, she didn't start 3D printing everything. So she still does a lot of objects or, or her garments by hand. Um, so it's just a fascinating look at someone who's really pushing the edge in terms of technology and incorporating that with fashion. We also have a small installation of six pieces from our permanent collection on view on the first floor in Gallery 104 called Fashion and Technology. So we uh, installed that to specifically look at, to pair with Iris's work, but to look at technology from the past. So we have one 18th century dress and then 19th century dresses that look at advancements in technology in the past. So we look at uh, lace making, printing, and dyeing. So if you have a chance to take a look at that, this is this weekend, or no? It goes through December. Great, it goes through December. So our original end date was uh, next Sunday, but we have extended that. So you have a little more time to take a look at that. Um, so I will, so in the Iris exhibition is open through January 7th, so you have some time to come back and see it again if you have seen it already and to bring others with you. So um, I'm going to introduce our speakers or our panelists here tonight. Um, to my right is Matthew Martin, who is a graduate of Columbus College of Art and Design. Uh, he has a BFA in computer animation, which has led his, to his interest, specific interest in reverse engineering. He is the division, division manager 
for the Cincinnati Office of Exact Metrology Incorporated, a 3D scanning company with capabilities of scanning micro-sized parts to mild-wide things. Um, he's also um, a Kenton County Planning Commissioner, and he's been with Exact Metrology for 10 years. So he's going to be able to give us a broader overview of the industry, 3D printing, printing and 3D scanning. And then on the far right, uh, my far right, is Dr. Michael Mamp. He is an associate professor of fashion design and merchandising at Central Michigan University, where he has, is also an affiliate faculty member of Women and Gender Studies and the director of uh, their uh, fashion and merchandising online undergraduate degree program. He uses 3D printing technology, uh, laser cutting, and digital textile printing, both in the classroom and in his own creative practice. Uh, he teaches a course titled 3D Printing and Fashion that focuses on the creation of jewelry, footwear, garments, and other forms of body adornment and garment <coughs> embellishment with the use of 3D printing. He has also co-authored uh, an article titled The Application of 3D Printing Technology in the Fashion Industry, which was published in the International Journal of Fashion Design, Technology and Education, and has lectured at uh, MakerBot corporate offices, uh, leading manufacturer of desktop 3D printers. Uh, his bachelor's degrees, degree is from Central Michigan University in Fashion Merchandising and Design. He has a Master of Arts in Textiles, Clothing, and Design at the, from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And his PhD is, from, is uh, in Apparel, Merchandising, and Design from Iowa State University. So thank you for being here. We so appreciate that. So, and I also want to mention that the loop of, this is just a loop of images that we're showing here. So, for instance, what you're seeing right now are images of pieces that uh, were created by Michael's students. Is that right? It's, some it's, are mine and some are my students. Okay, great. So, um, and there's a, just a little bit of information about them, but these you'll say Central Michigan University um, for the pieces that come from his classes and from his own work. Um, there is a group of images that are, are from Matthew and Exact Metrology, so what they're doing, and then there are images of Iris's work that are specifically 3D printed. Um, so uh, things that you're seeing in the exhibition that are, that are uh, primarily that are in the exhibition that are 3D printed. So that'll just keep looping through. We might refer to something, um, but we can't stop and, and move it around. So. So um, I thought I'd start with um, Matthew, just to give us kind of a broader view. And can you just, um, Matthew, kind of talk about what exact metrology does, what, what kind of things you're involved with? Sure. Uh, we do, we're a service provider for 3D laser scanning and reverse engineering. We do, uh, anybody that walks in our door, we can provide that service uh, to. So we can scan uh, people, we can scan a piece of hair, human hair, um, we scan cities, so it doesn't really matter. And then we also work with that. Every client walks in the door, be it do they want to take it just to the computer, do they want to take it to printing, do they want to take it to market. So we, we basically try to give a, a one-stop solution uh, to them and also provide them with, you know, with the support needed to get to where they're going, be it if they're going to 
make a casting of their sculpture or if they're going to do animation with it or if they're just going to print it for uh, reproductive, you know, re reproducing the part. So it, we try to be that support and that service provider for whoever comes in the door. The, the fun thing being on a service side and not on if I'm, say, I'm a tech for Ford uh, Motor Company and I'm doing all the 3D printing. I'm stuck working on a steering wheel or I'm stuck working on a wheel or I'm stuck working on a strut or something like that day in and day out when, when they're working on a problem. I don't know what's going to walk in the door tomorrow and I don't know what's going to be on my email after, this, after the discussion. That's the fun part about a service side is we can do anything. I'm not locked into one specific thing. I, coming out of college, I thought I wanted to do one specific thing and do that day in and day out. But actually doing the service that kind of fell into my lap is actually opened my eyes to every industry. And that's, that's actually pretty cool. So you're open to the public. Somebody can walk in the door and say, I want you to scan my hand, or yes. yeah. <laughs> for we, instance. And yeah, we can scan. Now we can scan in color. We can scan in texture. And now you can print in color, print in texture. You can get anything and everything printed in any material you want, as long as you, you have the budget for it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's kind of the cool thing that's back in when I started at Exact, we could barely, you know, scanning and computer power wasn't where it needs to be. But now today we're, we're scanning, you know, extremely quick. We're, we're processing data extremely quick. We're capturing, you know, the texture. You're no longer having to, to deal with that stuff on the back end. You can, you can capture it on the front end. So you're specifically doing scanning, not the 3D printing part of it, or we can we you only do that? have one printer, uh, and it it's just an ABS plastic printer. So if if you want something else, we can direct you or partner with uh, our suppliers to provide you with that service. No, no one printer or one line of printers is good at every material, which I'm okay. sure Michael you know is running into that too. So if you're going to the metal, we kind of will steer you one way or the other. If you if you want gold, you know, we're going to steer you a different direction. If you want ABS plastic or poly, you know, we're going to steer you or we're going to do it. So that's, unfortunately, I don't have a farm of printers. <laughs> I would love to, but I don't. So are you sending people to local companies or are they having things, you know, are you sending, because when you 3D scan, you create a 3D model, yep. a, a computer model that or a digital model that then could be sent? Yeah, it could be sent. And we can, we can send it locally if they're uh, wanting to print locally. Like Global Foam up in Dayton can print out uh, huge blocks of foam mm -hmm. like for uh, full-scale sculptures. Or we could send it to, uh, like Cincinnati Children's, we work with them for uh, hand sculptures for the, uh, the children. And their families want, you know, want to capture that and print it out something besides plaster. So we'll use like Shapeways to be able to give the family a wide selection of materials that they can actually pick from. Because maybe the aunt, aunt wanted poly, and maybe the family wants ceramic material, so that they can play. So we, we try to base our where we're going to go based off of, you know, again, just almost like an interview with the client mm -hmm. of, hey, what you're going to do. Great. So we're just seeing some images now of scanning people and seeing that in the computer. Can you talk about the scanning process, how that works? Yeah, it's usually a structured light of, of blinking uh, rapidly. And you can either keep your eyes shut or eyes open, uh, depending on your, you know, what you like. And it'll take a series of images, and you're just mapping. It's using the color and the texture as you're walking around the, uh, the person, the sculpture, whatever. And it's uh, aligning based off of all the, 
all of that. So you're not just aligning on unique shapes, you're aligning on color and texture as well. Okay. So we, we did that. Uh, there's a picture of a, a lady with white hair. Her name's Marie Claude. We did, she called us seven, eight years ago, and she had problems getting um, costumes designed in her, you know, her unique feature. So she wanted a scan of her body so that she could take her own measurements, make her own costumes, her and her mom actually do a lot of costumes designing. So she wanted that scan, and we're like, oh, wait. You know, I was kind of the first person that came to our you know, knocking, calling, so to speak, and asking us for, we want a human scan, you know. Okay. And yeah, we can do this now. We can scan color. We can do all this stuff. So Because you're just using a handheld mm -hmm. scanner that's connected to the computer, and you're running that over, I mean, or not even running it over the body, but you're um, kind of showing it to the, showing, showing. Yeah, you're just, you're just basically taking a, almost like painting, mm -hmm. just, but you, you know, you got to stand off and all that stuff. So it's, it's rather quick. We scanned, um, my daughter, we scanned her in about 10 minutes. A firefighter we recently scanned, that took like 45 minutes because a firefighter is full of gear. He's got a, thousand pounds of junk on him. So we're trying to get in every little nook and cranny to get uh, with the artist what he needs on, on the firefighter. Maintenance guy was like, you know, 15 minutes. So just depending on how much detail and what that individual is on, has on kind of dictates the time needed to stay in that pose. So. Can you, um, just because you're in the industry, just kind of talk about kind of basic 3D printing and what's involved in that, just so that we're sure everybody kind of understands how that works. So once, once we get a file, we take it to, uh, in, the, in the computer, we start cleaning the file up, getting the print ready, be it if we want to add stuff to it to make it a sculpture, or if we want to cut that file up into make it printed three or four different layers uh, in the printing process, so that obviously printers have capability limits, size limits. So we have to take that file, chop it up, um, or we can actually manipulate it. We've, with Children's Hospital, a lot of the plaster castings, they're missing fingers, or when they pull it out, it, you know, it breaks off, or maybe one of the other siblings is broken a piece or two off, or it gets passed around the family. We can actually digitally re, you know, basically sculpt that using what we've captured, and then other, the other fingers, and basically re-sculpt re it back into the model. So we can repair a model, you know. If, if it's missing a whole arm, we can use the other arm we captured and be able to, to clone it and duplicate it. Right, right. So 3D printing is basically an uh, additive manufacturing process. So, you know, for instance, this piece of, or piece of Eris is she's not carving away. You're creating a, a, a three-dimensional model yes. in the computer and then feeding that into the printer, that digital information into the printer that then reads it and lays down, I mean, at its most basic, yeah. lays down layers of material and then binder and material and binder. I know that there are different other methods mm -hmm. as well. That are and, and we're dealing, it's not just sculptures, humans, we're dealing, we're 3D printed, 80% of the airline parts we're seeing are 3D printed, coming to us for, for inspection needs. So it's not just the arts. Uh, in entertainment industry. It's everybody, it, GE Aviation, you, the amount of 3D printing that's in the engine in the airplane would probably freak some people out. You know, but it's all printed nowadays. It's all, it's all additive, so. We're going up in the air. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and there's a lot of medical applications as well. Yeah, it's definitely turned to, uh, as long, 
now that you can basically print out just about anything in any material as long as you get the process approved with the FDA, you know, be it the FDA for food or for the medical side. It, you know, as long as the government's willing and able to listen, it, you know, it usually gets approved and passed and you can get, you know, prosthetics, you know, was a huge, huge thing that kind of started the, the printing stuff. But now it's actually, you know, making uh, teeth, you know, a crown or, you know, something for your gum and, mm -hmm. and dental. I mean, things like heart valves, mm -hmm. they're printing those types of things. Stents. Right. Yeah, stents are now getting that's printed. interesting. So. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's almost, it's probably going to be eventually everything is going to additive at some form or the other. Right. right. That's great. So, um, Michael, just to bring you in, um, what first interested you in combining uh, advanced technologies with what you do? Within fashion education, we've always started with a basic sewing machine. You know, a sewing machine, a needle and thread, an iron and ironing board. And I ha had been aware of the work of people like Iris Van Herpen and also Francis Batonti, and really didn't have any experience with 3D modeling or printing, but wanted to learn more. And so I wrote a small grant to buy a, my first 3D printer, and that was approved, and so then I had to learn how to do that. Um, and then I also had the opportunity to, uh, I was supported by my college to attend a workshop that was hosted by Francis Batonti, who did the um, somewhat famous Dita Von Teese dress uh, that was 3D printed and embellished with Swarovski crystals, and has done also some collaborations with a couple different footwear companies. But I did a three-week workshop with him um, where I had an opportunity to kind of do an immersive experience with 3D modeling and printing, and then went about teaching myself. But I felt that it was important to show our students that, as you said, moving towards additive manufacturing, how would that apply to the fashion industry? And I wanted to find a way to integrate that into our design curriculum. So when you teach a basic class, are you teaching students how to sew with a machine, or are you teaching them we can feed this into a computer and <laughs> come up with a garment? Well, what's kind of fun about the 3D printing in fashion is that I teach this course that Cynthia had mentioned, uh, 3D printing in fashion, and we have both traditional fashion design students and merchandising students in our program. And traditionally, if you're a design student, you learn how to sew, make a pattern, do all that sort of thing. But 3D printing or additive manufacturing is really a disruptive process that I don't have to know how to make the garment. I don't have to know how to cobble the shoe. But if I know how to manipulate the software, I can print the object. So I have a mix of both merchandising and design students in my classroom, which also shifts the paradigm of thinking around being an entrepreneur and a designer and what that really means. So we still teach both. We teach beginning sewing and pattern making, but we do have this 3D printing component that's a strong part of our curriculum as well, and students funnel through that with or without previous making experience. Because a lot of design students, I know this is true at University of Cincinnati, you know, they come into fashion design and they've never picked up a needle or you know, experienced what it is to sew on a sewing machine. 
It's true, and Project Runway has sort of trained everyone to think about what fashion is and how it operates, which is more of a fantasy than a reality. Um, we love what Project Runway has done for us in terms of exposure, uh, but you're right, students show up without those manual dexterity skills because we don't teach that in high schools anymore. Um, but they're very tech savvy, and learning the software for 3D modeling is, I think, easier for them than it even is for me. They pick it up very quickly. Well, and it also makes me think, I mean, I know designers who, you know, or have known designers who don't know how to sew, but they can draw a design, and so then they hand it off to their pattern makers, so it's like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So what's, I mean, what's the reaction with students? Do you have students who come in and say, you know, I want to sew, I don't want to, you know, work with um, technology or no, vice versa? I, I would say in general that the students have really embraced the idea. They see it as learning a new valuable skill um, that might set them apart from other people in the industry in terms of looking for jobs. I know from the visits and the study tours that I do in the field, a lot of companies are integrating 3D modeling and printing, if not into the final product that they produce, into the stages of the design process. Um, so our students have embraced it, and they're also finding ways to then take traditional garment making, like the example that's on the screen, um, but figure out how to create embellishment for it through 3D printing versus using paillettes or beads that would have been made through a subtractive process, which is much more sustainable um, if you're doing it through an additive process. Um, I mean, I think for me that's one of the interesting things about Iris's work is she uses technology as a tool. It's not the end-all be-all. It's not, oh, now I'm going to 3D print everything. Um, and when she started doing 3D printing, it was hard plastic. You know, it was not material that was easy to wear or that anyone could wear. I mean, it's beginning to change. So are your students using more flexible materials? Are you finding that? So uh, we have 30 um, FDM, Fused Deposition Modeling Printers, which are MakerBot, and they print in a material that's called PLA, polylactic acid, which is a biodegradable, basically, plastic that's also made from renewable resources. So everything that you actually see on the screen is printed in that plastic. But the student could then take this shoe, for example, and send it to Shapeways, which is a 3D printing company based in Long Island City, and choose a variety of materials and have it printed in a different printer in whatever material they would like for it to be in. And the students are integrating it into their process. So not only are we teaching them 3D printing, but we're teaching them digital textile design and printing. We're teaching laser cutting as well as 3D modeling and printing. And so we're trying to give them sort of a toolkit of technological tools that then allows them to holistically solve whatever their design problem might be. So you have those, um, those uh, that technology on site or, so laser cutting, all those kinds of machines, and how does that work? I know, for instance, at University of Cincinnati, um, there is the rapid prototyping lab. I don't know if people are aware of this, but within the design college, there is a rapid prototyping lab. And they have laser printers or laser cutting uh, machines. They have um, 3D printers. 
and students come to them with their designs. They are treated like a client. So they come in and they say, here, I want you to print this, or I want to laser cut this. They might help the students do it, or they might do it for the students for a minimal cost. Um, they don't want the students coming in there and kind of blowing up the, the machinery. I'm just curious how that works uh, sure. at your university. Some of our processes are centralized, similar to Cincinnati. Uh, our Center for Merchandising and Design Technology is where our body, we also have a body scanner, an air permeability machine, a hot plate tester, um, a bunch of other, uh, an environmental chamber so that we can test garments in particular environments and humidity. Um, so that's all housed in our Center for Merchandising and Design Technology, and there's a, a full-time person who works there. And then our 3D printing um, has a website that makes the 3D printing available, our 3D printing lab available to the whole campus community, not just the fashion students, although it was sponsored by our program. So the student can upload their file, uh, and then we employ a variety of student technicians in the lab, and they download the file and check it and make sure that it's ready to print. And then the student gets a message that says your print was approved or your print was declined based on the quality of the file that was submitted. And then when it's done printing, they get an email that says, come pick up your file. It's done. And I think we charge them 15 cents a gram, which is a relatively small fee for them to be able to print their object. So you mentioned the, the kind of material that you're using for 3D printing. Is that, um, I know that there's a powder form where the, uh, the object is built. Or, it's, or you can layer things, what's that process? So what we're doing, uh, FDM, which is fused deposition modeling, the best way to think of it is like a fancy hot glue gun. <laughs> it's basically taking um, a piece of filament, a long piece of plastic, feeding it through an extruder that heats it up, and then literally lays those layers down one on top of the other until you have a completed object. The powder process that you're referring to is most typically SLS, which is selective laser sintering, that's using a nylon-based powder sometimes, um, where it is sort of taken away from a block and the powder comes off, but then all of that residual powder that comes off of the block is also recyclable or able to be vacuumed away. So we're doing FDM. One, because MakerBot, which is we're in partnership with them in the lab that we have, um, has made these desktop printers somewhat affordable. Um, so it's a good way for the student to be introduced to the technology at a ro relatively low cost to us, but then they know the software and we model in Rhinoceros, which is our main software that we teach in. Um, once they know the software and how to create the object, they could send it anywhere to be printed in a different material if they wanted it. Um, so, and I'll just mention that there is a 3D printer on site here at the museum. Um, we, that was one of my goals with this exhibition, was to have a 3D printer on site so that people could see and understand the process. Um, and so that's in our Rosenthal Education Center, and it's running every day that the museum is open. It's running all day long, and, and Alex, who runs the uh, rec center, um, starts it up in the morning, and, and by the end of the day, she has a finished little product of some kind. Um, so it's, it's an opportunity for you to kind of see how that process works and, and understand um, that additive process that 
Iris was definitely using. You know, I think that's one of the great things about additive processes is it is, it's all biodegradable material, it's, there's no waste, it's, it's very um, environmentally friendly, which is great. So. It, it is, and it, it, not only is it environmentally friendly, but it's so much more um, conducive to prototyping. You know, if I were making a shoe, designing a shoe via tra traditional methods, I would have to learn how to be a cobbler and work with the last and manipulate leather, and it might take me a month to make my first prototype. Whereas once I've made my file, I can print it in small scale. Oh, I don't like the shape of that heel. Let me change it, print another one. So it speeds up and provides greater opportunity for creativity, in, in my viewpoint, because we're not needing all of the time in between to physically build each, each model. So I'm just curious, if you um, 3D print something, is that, and it's not the shoe that you want, is that material recyclable so you can break it back down and, or yeah. melt it back down or someone can? And yeah, this particular um, filament that we're using is. So even any rafts or supports that come off of the print, that all goes into the recycling bin. So can you... Do you, and so do you send it off to be recreated into filament again? We just send it because it's just, it gets recycled with all of the other plastic. plastic. Mm -hmm. okay. So it just goes to the regular recycling. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and, okay. and the student can put it into any recycling bin on campus. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. So Matthew, I know you've talked about some of the projects that you've worked on. Um, have you, can you talk about some of projects that are a little more art-related, perhaps? I know that you were um, potentially involved in a project here at the museum. Um, we were, uh, we applied for um, a couple of grants to uh, scan some of our period rooms, which are not on view at present, and we haven't had space for a long time to show them, and our, um, Decorative Arts Curator Amy Dehan decided to write a grant to potentially digitally scan our 3D, I mean our period rooms in order to put them online. At least they could be accessible that way. And you were part, you know, written into that grant as a, you know, as the scan, as possible scan. Yes. So have you done other things like that? Other things that are involved in art or fashion or? Uh, yeah, we were. For Tom Shusia here in town, the artist that's on the red statues, he did the, the new Jesus statue on 75. He did the UC bear, uh, Bearcat. Um, all those, he comes to us. He's kind of, you know, he's embraced technology and in, mm -hmm. in trying to make his process smoother and also make, you know, unrealistic deadlines. You know, because still as an artist, you got to hit a deadline. So uh, he's kind of embraced that and he uses us pretty exclusively for his scanning. Um, his latest, he scanned actual humans instead of sculpting them out of clay to start out with what he thinks each pose is going to be for his for the statues for the city that uh, commissioned him, and then that way he can start a full scale replica of it milled out of uh, foam, and then he can start sculpting it and working on it and get it eventually get it to the casting and bronzing quicker uh, to meet a, in my opinion, very unre unrealistic deadline. But artists need deadlines, so right. it's kind of a catch-22. Um, the, the period scanning, we, we have a bunch of different scanners, so we're able to, 
you know, pick and choose what we want and how we want it. We're also, a, a lot of clients are going to what you said, the period room where you can view it online. Mm -hmm. So we've scanned some plaques that are, that'll be available online. That if you can't travel to that site, you're able to at least feel like you're at the site, right. you know, in, in the computer. And it's, it's a very, the computer is a medium to be used uh, for whoever's doing it, either if it's for the Hall of Fame or if it's for an art museum or, or whoever, it is a medium. That, that it's available and with the power of the internet, power of computers now, power of our cell phones, you know, it is available. Right, great. So, Michael, can you talk about a little bit about your own work? I don't know if there are images here of things that you've created that um, incorporate technology. Sure. Um, what's on the screen right now is actually uh, done by a student of mine that utilized a body scan. Um, so they scanned the model that's wearing this garment uh, in a body scanner and then molded the black piece of that garment, modeled it, and then 3D printed it and connected it with the knitted piece. In my own work, I've done primarily jewelry and embellishment for garments. Um, but one project that I worked on for a while was these pink or blue and yellow shoes that you've probably seen come up. Here they are. So the heel of this shoe was taken from a scan of an 18th century shoe that's in the V&A. So there were a couple of things that I wanted to do. I wanted to show how we could use 3D printing to aid in the design process of footwear. Um, and I also wanted to, within the context of historic artifacts, you can't put out the 18th century shoe for someone to pick up and hold but I could scan it and 3D print it and put that out if someone wanted to get a sense of what the artifact might be like in terms of scale or shape. So that integrated that scan while also designing the shape of the shoe. Um, and I was trying to get fine detail. One of the patterns was raised and one of the patterns was embossed. And it's difficult to get that kind of detail with the type of printers that we have on campus with FDM printers. But I wanted to see how far I could push it and we got an extremely clean print. Um, so my work is focused primarily on that. And then my students, this is another example of a piece that was done with a body scan. So the model that is wearing this was scanned and this jewelry was made to fit her and then printed. So are you using body, you've talked about body scanning um, in connection with what you're teaching. Are students using that for pattern making? So rather than, you know, just for 3D printed things yes. so they can scan a body and get the exact measurements and. We're really using it across the spectrum. So we're scanning um, people to get measurements and then using those measurements to draft patterns. Uh, we're scanning for 3D modeling um, we're also part of a project right now where we're scanning just to capture data to understand what size people are and what our sizing standards in the country. So the students have access to the scanner and then use it in a variety of ways, whether they're making clothes in a traditional method or if they're doing something from a 3D printing standpoint. So one of the things that I think certainly we see in Iris's work and that's been changing over time, I mean, the first 3D printed piece that she sent down the runway 
and a number of them after that were kind of hard plastic. You know, that's kind of where the technology was. And it's becoming more flexible. Materials are becoming more flexible. Can either of you kind of talk about what the difference is in those materials, kind of how that's, how things have changed, how things are continuing to change? I don't know. Uh, so, I, you know, back in, what was that, 2010, we said, when she did that first one. Um, yeah, materials, it, it was expensive. Number one and number two, it wasn't very forgiving, but it was also becoming more consumer-based. You know, it was, it, it was becoming into the masses. So then, I, when you put a product out there for everybody to use, it's only going to be pushed. You know, it's not behind closed doors anymore. So then, there's going to be people like Iris that comes and says, "I want to print something translucent." So it's going to push the supplier. It's going to push 3D systems. It's going to push Stratus. Uh, to be able to provide these materials. And I, I believe with with that push, you know, and the, the suppliers, companies, you know, willingness to listen to people will only make these materials more readily available. And that's, I think, why we all of a sudden are seeing these stuff that's that's printed nowadays that you can put in your mouth, you can put in a human body, you can, you know, you can you can use every day. Um, it's It's because of people, I think, like her, you know that are that are pushing companies and pushing these companies to say, hey, you know, I want such and such material. I want I want to be able to print something out of stainless. Well, why do you want to do that? Because I because I can because I'm gonna, you know, print it out of stainless. So it's I think that's where a lot of the help has come here. Especially if you look at 2010 to 2017, it's it's only seven years. You know, it's a huge technology jump. You know, in, in a seven year span, usually you're looking at 70. You know. It, it, when you're looking at machining and, and pattern making and all that stuff. Right. But this is seven years, you know, for her exhibit up there. Right. So it's come a long way. Yeah. The, the kinds of materials, um, I'll just comment on Shapeways because I use them most frequently. Very user-friendly website. Go to the website, whole list of materials from steel to gold and silver and plastic. Um, people are starting to experiment with 3D printing in cellulose, so in wood. Um, our medical school is working on 3D printing human tissue. Um, so the, the types of materials have uh, grown exponentially. And also there are some materials, one in particular, NinjaFlex, which we use, which is still a recyclable plastic material, but it has stretch and give to it. So I have a student who's um, working right now on printing a bracelet that's really t uh, sort of taut to the body, but is printed in NinjaFlex, which then also allows us to print sort of components, and it's soft enough that we could stitch it together or that we could put it through an industrial sewing machine. Just kind of talking about flexible materials, one of some of the research that I was doing, looking at what was going on in fashion and in 3D printing as this show was um, coming about, was an Israeli student who decided that for her thesis, she would 3D print an entire uh, collection. So I think she did eight, seven or eight ensembles kind of from head to toe. Um, didn't realize how long it was going to take her to 3D print all those things, and so ended up buying a number or getting a number of 3D printers and running them kind of 24-7 in order to get done on time. But those things are very flexible, and she created that collection. She's created another collection. It's something that 
um, you know, she's interested in continuing to pursue. So the materials are getting more flexible where, you know, something like this is, you know, basically unwearable by you and me. Right. Um, well, maybe you know. use it. <laughs> uh, you come down the model on the, down the runway on a model, but um, you know not not for normal wear. But uh, the things that this student did are things that you know could be worn. And in fact, I happened upon a TED talk that she did, in which she said she was traveling, she needed a skirt or an outfit to go to a particular event, and you know created a model and had it 3D printed, and she wore it you know, on that trip and had it on for the TED Talk. So it's something that, you know, was um, easily accessible to her because she knew the technology, but also just able to, you know, print something up and it was wearable. Well, what's been really cool for me to see with the students is that although we focus on these sort of fashion-related projects, mm -hmm. they're starting to go, oh, well, we're having a fundraiser and we need a coffee mug. Well, we can 3D print those or we can do a keychain fob or one of my students printed um, a vase for me and gave it to me for Thanksgiving to put on my Thanksgiving table. Mm -hmm. um, so they're figuring out ways to also integrate what they've learned through these projects into just, you know, someday when you need a coffee mug, you're not gonna drive to the Target store or even order the coffee mug from online. You'll just go online and download the file and print it. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of my next thought is, you know, where is this going? So for you, what do you see as kind of the next step in terms of the industry? I, I think it's two, almost twofold. I think one is the education. I think we're getting hit up a lot for STEM programs and schools where this stuff wasn't in schools. You know, I, I think you were talking about the grant and in high school and, and pushing it down and, you know, going to the elementary schools, going to the high schools. I, I think that's big future part because you already got the kids like I just did one last week and they're they're like well can can you print 3d print my diorama project for me you know and they it the, the wheels start turning you start turning the wheels at that age I can't imagine you know when they're in college what the wheels are how they're turning so I think there's that important aspect that you're opening up these doors and you know having these kids think like that and then the other one is I, I think you're going to have a lot more um, scanners, be able to scan in color, scan in texture, uh, and uh, like you said, print, you know, print with the tissue, you know, and actually you print your own head at home, you know, a second head almost. And right now we, we can scan in color, scan in texture, but we're capturing, you know, light in the environment. I think once somebody figures out how to capture where it's almost a unilateral light so that you can create the light on your own 3D print, and you're not capturing that in the scan, that that's gonna be a, a little bit of a game changer when you're talking about color. Because now you're not, you're actually capturing true color, you're not capturing environmental color. So that, that's kind of where I think the, the pushes are, you know, where it's right. gonna go. Right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I look at what Iris is doing, and, you know, people, people look at her work and say, well, nobody can wear that, it's, you know, over the top, it's, it's not practical, but, She's pushing, pushing the edge, as you said. She, you know, with that clear printed dress that everybody said it can't be done, it happened, you know, and now we're seeing that as something that can be done, that the, the technology is there now, working with more flexible materials. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't expect to have 
personal computers or laptops, you know, in everyone's home or the internet in our pocket. I mean, thing, you know, we're on the verge of kind of driverless cars and, you know, I've, I um, saw a commercial the other day for the Google Mini, you know, those little devices in your home that you can talk to and they were, you know, in the advertisement, they were ordering things from Walmart, you know, and there it shows up on your doorstep. So technology is really changing our world, and I think that, you know, 3D printing is part of that and is really going to enter our, our world in a different way, you know. Um, do you kind of see fashion as kind of going in that direction? I think that um, fashion is, as an industry, actually at times slow to adapt. Um, and that's often related to labor costs and how manufacturing has been um, sent mostly outside of the country um, due to labor cost. But yes, and I know that many companies are already, if not looking into utilizing 3D printing, as I mentioned earlier, at least as part of their process. So at Shinola, which is an emerging brand out of Detroit, they're 3D printing models of the watches that they design so that they can see them in real time. Uh, but I do think that eventually, you know, several of the um, footwear companies, Nike, Adidas, have introduced 3D printed components into their shoes. And so as that continues to develop, it offers an opportunity for the customer to interact and customize. So someone could make a decision about the shape or the size or the embellishment and, and make that one of a kind. Mm -hmm. So I do see it as continuing to emerge. Yeah, and we do see companies, there are some companies online that are, you know, design your own shoe or, mm -hmm. you know, um, the design is somewhat set, but you can play with the colors that you want it to be printed in, that There's type of really thing. There's a really cool one called Feets, F-E-E-T-Z. You download the app, you take a picture with your phone of your foot, and then you go online, you design your shoe, it's in a flexible filament, and they print your shoe and send it to you. Yeah, someday we'll be printing our own, our own clothing at home, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think we're about out of time, but we wanted to leave a little bit of time for questions from the audience, if you have any. And Russell has a microphone. Um, he is recording this, the audio for this, so if you can use the microphone, that would be great. Does anybody have a, a question about 3D printing or fashion technology or Iris's work? Or So I, I'm curious about the cost of 3D printing and if the future does involve um, 3D printing our own clothing, will the what we need to use that in the 3D printer, basically the ink, if you will, will that come down in price, do you think? Well, the material that we're printing in for prototyping purposes now, the plastic is very inexpensive. So it's sort of, it's sort of no different than if you go to the store now and you buy the acrylic jacket versus the leather jacket, the acrylic jacket's probably gonna be cheaper. But if you print the bracelet in plastic, it'll be cheaper than if you print it in gold. So really it depends on what material you're choosing to print your object in. And I think that those costs are somewhat constant. 
Um, so. Um, yeah, I would agree. I think your precious metals are going to be constant, but plas I, plastic is probably basically where it's going to be at today. I think it'll be out there for a while. It's, I think it's the speed that's going to, you're going to see the biggest gap close. You know, you, a lot of times people say it'd be on the printer and you think it's going to print it out like you're printing out, you know, a book report. And it's, it's not that. It's 36 hours. It's 48 hours of, of constantly sitting there printing. I think that's the gap that's going to close. I don't think the I material agree. cost. Yeah. Uh, so my question is for anyone that uh, I was curious if you guys had any experience directly or indirectly with multi-material printing, mm. and if you guys see that as uh, either within fashion or, or the uh, industry. Uh, in other industries as well as using multi-material 3D printing instead of doing individual components that you're then assembling? Mine's only been indirect, so I don't know if you've been... Um, so we have printed a couple of things that had components that then were assembled and the components were in different materials, but we haven't printed a singular object in different materials, mostly because the material that you print in is determined by the printer. So if you wanted to go from plastic to silver, I can't do that in the same printer. Um, but I have printed individual components and then assembled them together in different materials. Mine. That would be mine. Mine as well as the printing individual. It's I know there's printers out there doing the multiple materials and they're they're getting pretty dang successful, mm -hmm. in my opinion. It, it's expensive, mm -hmm. but it's kind of like a 4K TV. Eventually it's gonna come down mm -hmm. and then you'll it'll be at Central Michigan and, <laughs> and Shapeways. <Hopefully. laughs> yeah. um, so there's this technology where you can scan people's bodies and you were saying that that's used sometimes to gather information on people's sizes. Are there, um, like of the larger clothing companies using that technology to make clothes fit better? Because I feel like they're not. They are absolutely not. <laughs> um, and it's a shame. Uh, the study that I mentioned, there, there's a government-sponsored study that multiple universities are participating in across the country right now, Cornell, Central Michigan, I think Iowa State, and I can't remember the others. Uh, but it's called Size North America. And one of the things that that study is attempting to address is this disparity in our understanding of size and what that really means. The average American woman is actually a size 14, and yet when we look at the assortment in stores, we're not addressing that consumer's needs. It's so complicated with manufacturing and all of the stigmas that unfortunately continue to persist within what is called the plus size market, and I don't even like that term. Um, but no, they're not. And I worked at Lane Bryant for nine years and have even reached out and tried to uh, build that bridge, but we're not there yet. I hope that we will be in the future. Kind of, I, coming from my experience, it's the same thing as they haven't embraced it. But on the, say, personal hygiene side, on your medical gloves when you go into a hospital, we've scanned a, hundreds of hand, sets of hands so that they can take measurements of you know, my, all our hands are different, you know, and how to make those medical gloves fit better. How do you make personal hygiene products fit better? We've done those types of scans. So that, that side's been embraced, the technologies have been embraced the change. 
fortunately, clothing, you know, mainstream clothing has not. I, I don't think in 10 years I've ever had a request from a mainstream, you know, lame Ryan. Yeah. What's exciting, though, is that many of the students that are trying to do their own startups, they are. So they're recognizing that there are holes in the market and are trying to address those holes, whether it be size or uh, gender or whatever the case may be, and trying to use more realistic measurements of people. So I'm excited to see what they'll do in the future with that. I mean, that's what's exciting about you working with students is they go out into the field mm -hmm. Um, either as they graduate or I'm assuming that if they go on a co-op, they're being introduced to that, mm -hmm. incorporating this technology into the industry and what the industry is incorporating, they're learning. Mm -hmm. And so then it's going to become the norm rather than the exception. Yeah. Yeah, which is great. Well, thank you for being here tonight. <laughs> I hope thank this was coming. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Albrecht Dürer, The Age of Reformation and Renaissance, Iris von Erpen, Transforming Fashion, Anna England, Kinship, and William Kintridge, More Sweetly Play the Dance. Join us on January 6th from 12 to 4 p.m. for Family First Saturday Renaissance Festival. This fun and free day for the whole family will feature Renaissance music, costumes, scavenger hunts, and art making inspired by our new exhibition, Albrecht Durer, The Age of Reformation and Renaissance. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. And while you're there, go to events and programs and then scroll down to Art Palace Podcast. We still want to learn about you, so please take our very quick listener survey while you are there. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and even join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalau. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. 